Welcome to Grand Rounds. It is November 28th. So Wednesday, it is also a, an intern recruitment day. So 11.45, please come join our candidates for residency for lunch and case conference. I'm going to go run over right now and meet them. So um, it's the last Grand Rounds of November, and we welcome December. And Dr. Shepkin will have the pleasure of introducing our guest, Dr. Collins, who, uh, Coffin, Dr. Coffin, Susan, who was, invi who was invited by, who was invited by Drs. Palumbo and Wright, who aren't here. They invited you and then they skipped town, but we had a lovely dinner the other night with Paul, uh, with Peter, and, um, and you've been busy teaching uh, ID folks and now pediatric folks. So, Kathy, take it away. All right. As uh, Dr. Lyle said, we welcome Dr. Coffin. Doctors Wright and Palumbo invalued her many months ago, but I guess Dr. Wright is in Geneva, is what Dr. Coffin told me. So he has a fair excuse to go work uh, on ID internationally right now. Dr. Coffin um, is a graduate of Williams College. Um, she went to our neighbors in the north at UVM for medical school and had her MD uh, from UVM, got her MPH, at Johns Hopkins, where she did her internship residency and was a chief resident there. She followed up with a fellowship in infectious disease at um, CHOP, and it sounds like you've been there ever since. Is that correct? She's a professor of pe ever since. She's been a professor of pediatrics and a distinguished chair of pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Also, I believe the associate fellowship director for the uh, ID fellowship program. Um, she has an extensive uh, research and publication history of uh, over 150 articles that I could see focusing on healthcare-associated infections and influenza. She's been a leader in the infectious disease world, both locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. So with that, we are very uh, welcome to have you today. Thank you. I'll, I'll let the audience decide if the slides uh, are visible. We'll keep everybody away right now. Okay. Okay. We can just uh, whistle and stuff. So it's really great to be here. I really think of this part of the world as my home country. Um, I have a uh, Ben & Jerry's sticker on my, uh, my computer. Uh, ben & Jerry's helped me buy my first house, but that's another story. Um, so uh, it's great to be here. It's um, always interesting for me to talk about influenza. I have a variety of different reasons why this is a disease that, that particularly um, concerns me. And I think that as we're starting the winter season, as a group of pediatricians coming off of last year's really bad flu season, I would imagine a lot of you are wondering what flies ahead, as I am. I think the quick answer there is we don't know, but I'll share with you some of my thoughts about what we should be thinking about as we enter this flu season. So um, this is the one disclosure that I need to um, give. I'm a member with DSMB for a Merck product related to C. diff. Um, nothing to do with influenza. I have um, uh, funding from um, uh, various federal agencies. So what am I going to talk about? This real slide is really for the House staff who are coming post-call. So if you know, they nod off, they get the punchline early. <laughs> so pediatric influenza, it's bad. It can be serious. We do have ways to fight it in addition to our preventative measures, and those are antivirals, and that will largely be what I talk about. Um, and the theme there is early and often. Um, and then we also, I think, have an under-considered role of how to use antivirals as a preventive agent, either for patients who can't uh, receive influenza vaccine, patients who can't 
here. I just realized I didn't turn on my mic. Is that a little bit better? Um, patients who can't receive influenza vaccine, patients who can't respond to influenza vaccine, or in the event that we actually don't have enough influenza vaccine to go around. So I thought I'd start by just showing what's going on. So these are the most recent data that I could grab from FluView, um, part of the CDC's um, uh, ongoing surveillance for influenza. And this map contains data that goes through the middle of November. What you can see here is that Vermont and New Hampshire have the um, distinguished um, role of being some of the few act, uh, states that, it, as of then, were having actual ongoing local transmission. And I don't know if you folks been seeing a little bit of flu scattered about in the emergency room, et cetera. It sounds like it. We've had one positive flu determination at the hospital where I work, so it hasn't yet made it to, to eastern Pennsylvania. This um, uh, graph shows um, influenza-like uh, illness visits to outpatient settings and really begins to give us a snapshot of when things are started. So a couple of things to point out. Does anybody know what this big uh, peak here is all the way over to the left? That's 2009, pandemic flu. Yep. And then this is what we just experienced. And I think it's interesting to compare these two. So as compared to the pandemic year, we basically had a very similar shape um, in terms of the peak, but at also a broader shoulder. And I think that really, um, for me, as I look back and reflect on what we went through, at least at my hospital, with weeks and weeks of sustained high activity, um, uh, really full emergency rooms, full hospital um, with children with flu, um, that, that seems to reflect it. So what's going to happen this year? Uh, sadly, these little red triangles are all that we know. And as we skate here approaching the um, uh, outbreak threshold line, we really don't know which of these curves um, this year is going to most closely approximate. So stay tuned. There's a little bit of foreshadowing. This is a big thing that um, influenza researchers like to do. It's a little bit like reading tea leaves, trying to guess what is going to come. Um, this uh, pie chart all the way over on the left shows the analyses of the flu strains that have been uh, recovered since the end of last in, uh, influenza season. So there's always a few stray strains, a few stray cases happening. And what you can see is that the bulk of the cases, that big orange lower half, are H1N1. And we have about a quarter of the recently uh, recovered strains being the residual of last year, which was an H3N2 year. So if this um, pattern persists, we may be in for a little bit of luck. We may shift back to an H1N1 year as compared to a predominant H3N2 um, year. The reason that's important, at least to, to me, is that overall H3N3, uh, H2N3 uh, years tend to be more severe in terms of the um, disease uh, that uh, patients present with. So on to pediatric flu. I think pediatric flu for many years was really underappreciated as a cause of important lower respiratory tract disease in, in the wintertime. I think we all be, were very, very focused on RSV, 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 uh, for good reason. But uh, neglected the fact that each year, somewhere between 20 and 30 percent of school-aged children have an influenza illness, and this is a real influenza illness, not an influenza-like illness. Of children who, um, uh, who are under five years of age, one out of 100 will be hospitalized each year. Again, a pretty big number. 
And <clears throat> what we have begun to appreciate over the past 10 years is that influenza kills children. And we'll talk more about who are the children who are um, susceptible to very serious and, and ultimately fatal flu. Um, over the past 10 years since we started um, doing an um, active surveillance for influenza-like illness, we've had reports of death, uh, not influenza-like illness, but pediatric influenza deaths. We've had reports of um, uh, rates of death that range from um, 23 to 153 per year. However, look at the number that we had last year, 185. And again, I think this speaks to what really was an um, uh, unprecedentedly bad non-pandemic year for flu. So flu isn't just a disease of the very young. Here you see um, uh, data again from the CDC showing um, uh, the distribution of cases of serious flu in um, children. The little um, bottom green bars are children under six months of age. Those are the children who can't um, get, in, get vaccinated. But obviously the vast majority of that uh, disease is occurring in children who are eligible for vaccination. And there are other data to suggest that a substantial amount of this disease is happening in children who were vaccinated. The other thing that I think is really uh, sobering is there are definitely children who are more vulnerable to um, serious influenza, those with specific chronic underlying illnesses. However, those bright yellow bars show us that it's not just those children who are at risk for very severe flu, but also otherwise healthy children. So each year, about 50% or so of the um, uh, influenza-associated deaths in children happen in children who don't have underlying medical conditions. We did a study in Philadelphia trying to understand really what were the relationships between high-risk conditions and adverse outcomes. We built a cohort of children who are hospitalized with laboratory-confirmed influenza. We stratified them based on whether or not they did or did not have a high-risk condition, and then looked at a variety of complications. And these are complications that we defined, including a prolonged hospital stay of a week or more, as well as suspected bacterial pneumonia, seizure, respiratory failure. And what we found was that, um, yes, indeed, not surprisingly, high-risk children have an elevated risk of having a complication, whether it be a prolonged hospital stay, um, a bacterial pneumonia, or a um, seizure. However, the other thing which I think uh, was really notable is that about 20% of the otherwise healthy children also had a serious complication of flu. Again, to me, building the story that we can't just pick out by knowing a child's medical history, um, uh, whether or not they're likely to have a very serious course with an influenza infection. So with that, I want to talk a little bit about what we can do to fight flu. And so the rest of what I'm going to be talking about are more pharmacologic approaches to fighting flu. The topic of vaccination is huge. You have a lot of experts um, here uh, on staff, on faculty, who are um, far more wise about this than I. So I thought I'd focus on some of what we can do in terms of our therapies. So what do we have for antiviral agents? Well, the array of agents is really quite small um, uh, for agents that have activity against influenza. Um, amantadine and rimantadine are agents that have just activity against influenza A. And I bet that the, the House staff have never used these drugs. I think there's really not much of a role for them at this point in time. 
Oseltamivir is probably the antiviral that gets the most use, particularly in pediatrics now that it has approval down to um, use in infancy. And it has activity against both A and B, and that can be administered orally. Zanamivir, an agent that's um, also a neuraminidase inhibitor, so preventing viral encoding, can um, uh, also be used quite effectively in, um, uh, to uh, combat flu um, A and B. But that, that has to be taken by inhalation and really has uh, not gotten a lot of traction in the market um, just because it's difficult to administer. Just a year or two ago, we had developed a new agent, paramavir. Paramavir was a real um, uh, plus for people who treat ser children with serious flu in the ICU who might not be able to take oral medications because this was our first um, anti-flu agent that could be administered um, uh, IV. So why do we want to use um, uh, an antiviral agent? Well, some of the first data came from Rich Whitley, one of the famous um, uh, researchers on antivirals. And he was able to demonstrate if we took a bunch of otherwise healthy kids relatively early in their course of influenza, and we randomized them to either getting um, uh, um, oseltamivir or not, and just watched what happened, we were able to demonstrate that about um, uh, 36 percent um, or 36 hours shortening of the time that they would be febrile, so a day and a half, and then about two days shortening of the time that they were kind of down until they got back to the regular activities. So again, from the perspective of a parent at home with a sick child, these are meaningful differences. They don't really grab our attention if we're hospital-based pediatricians, but I think if we consider that 20 to 30 percent of children each year are going to have a, um, a influenza, this may, on a population basis, actually have impact, both at the level of the child and at the level of the family. There are additional benefits of using oseltamivir. One um, uh, is just simply that you're decreasing the amount of um, uh, live virus in the community. You're shortening viral sh um, shedding by about two days. That decreases infectivity. And we'll talk more about that with the um, uh, use of it as a prophylactic agent. And then it also decreases the secondary um, bacterial complications, so reducing the rate of um, secondary otitis media. Um, and in a way in which that we can demonstrate that if we treat five children under five with oseltamivir, we're going to prevent one episode of um, uh, otitis. So one less course of an antibacterial. And if you think about that as the trade-off, I'm not quite sure what the calculus is, and I need a health economist to do it, but five courses of oseltamivir, and you get kids going back to school more quickly, parents going back to work more quickly, and one less course of uh, antibacterial therapy. To me, for a drug that has very few side effects, I think that's a plus. Data from um, uh, larger studies also have demonstrated that this is true. And so in this um, analysis, the investigators aggregated individual level data from 10 different um, randomized controlled trials and asked the question, how often are um, lower respiratory tract infections um, being diagnosed and treated with antibacterials? So again, the people who are treating these, anti uh, these lower respiratory tract infections are blinded to whether or not the um, subject was getting oseltamivir or placebo. Mm -hmm. And so the decisions they were making were independent of their knowledge of whether or not the patient was under treatment uh, getting active drug against flu. And you can see uh, over here, I think you can see, um, that if we consider all patients, we have um, about a 6% reduction 
in um, the 6% absolute reduction, or about halving, of the um, frequency with which antibacterials are being prescribed for lower respiratory tract infections, and that this difference persists for um, patients who are healthy. Let's see if I can get this to work. So you can see the middle set of bars for patients who are healthy, as well as for patients who have some sort of a high-risk condition. And interestingly, that the effect is blunted um, to non-existent amongst patients who have, test, have tested negative for influenza. Again, demonstrating that I think there is something specific happening at the level of viral replication that's changing the, the risk of developing a secondary bacterial infection. Again, another meta-analysis tried to answer this question. This has become a very serious question because we, we have noticed that people don't use a lot of oseltamivir in the outpatient setting. And so here you can see that with the pooling of data from 11 um, RCTs, again, that the pooled mean demonstrates a reduction in the um, incidence of lower respiratory tract infections. What about preventing hospitalization? This is when I start to pay attention as a hospital-based pediatrician. Mm -hmm. Like, if we can prevent a hospitalization, that's a big that's a bigger thing to me, or something I perceive more. And here, using claims data from um, a database called Market Scan, the investigators uh, were able to aggregate data from six seasons and see whether or not those children who were treated with oseltamivir did better. And in the big red box, you can see the all ages analysis, and that with oseltamivir therapy, patients were less likely to um, have a diagnosis of pneumonia or any other lower respiratory tract infection, and we're less likely to be hospitalized for any reason in the next 30 days. Again, that alone is probably worth the cost of a course of um, oseltamivir. Additional studies have demonstrated that when we stratify these data, we look at just children. The effect is the same, about a 75% adjusted odds ratio of uh, uh, risk of um, reducing or preventing hospitalization and that this occurs in both children who are healthy and children with a high-risk condition. Again, suggesting that this is not just an artifact of a lot of high-risk children getting oseltamivir. This can be seen when we give otherwise healthy children oseltamivir, that we are going to prevent some hospitalizations. Interestingly, and something that I think deserves a lot more study, is that this effect is somewhat abrogated when we compare early versus late. The real dogma has always been, if you're going to use oseltamivir or any antiviral, use it early. And I think that is the case. But this, this finding, where we go from significant to, to a loss of significance, to me suggests that there is possibly some activity when we administer drug late in a subset of patients. Again, this hasn't been well studied. It hasn't been, um, uh, um, been clearly proven. but. Um, I'll show you um, in a moment the AAP recommendations, which really support this as a probable approach for the most seriously ill. So who does the AAP this year recommend receive um, treatment for um, uh, influenza? Anybody who's hospitalized with su suspect or proven influenza. Clearly people who are hospitalized with severe and progressive disease that's attributable um, to influenza. And here's what's uh, to me striking. They're now saying regardless of the duration of symptoms. And so previously we had a hard rule. We're not giving anybody um, oseltamivir who's been um, sick for greater than two, two days. It's not going to work. 
And I think this, to me, as an ID doc, is going to um, uh, encourage me to think uh, long and hard about whether or not I want to um, go ahead and recommend oseltamivir, even for those who have been um, ill for longer than two days. And then finally, um, oseltamivir um, in a patient of any severity of illness who has a high-risk condition. So this really speaks to an outpatient with a high-risk condition who presents with um, flu. The AP um, recommends considering a therapy, so a second level of recommendation. If um, uh, we're seeing a healthy child in an outpatient setting with um, suspected influenza, and I think one of the challenges is when are we looking at suspect influenza and when are we looking at suspect RSV, and I think a, a lot of us who practice in outpatient settings really struggle with that. And then obviously, um, if we are te uh, treating a patient or seeing a patient who has um, uh, a high likelihood of having influenza and has a household contact who is very vulnerable and perhaps unable to be immunized, such as a child under six months of age, or unable to respond to an immunization, such as an immunocompromised um, uh, sibling or parent, that's another reason to use oseltamivir, in my opinion. We're going to decrease the likelihood and the duration, the, the tighter the sh duration of shedding. Of course. Um, on the last slide, um, just trying to understand um, the AAP's recommendation. So um, the regardless of duration, is that for the high-risk individuals, or is this all individuals? So, so that um, uh, kind of clause is appended to a hospitalized patient with a severe um, episode. So to me, this means the kid who comes in through your emergency room after four days of illness, rapidly progressive respiratory um, failure, up in your ICU, intubated. That, to me, that's what that um, uh, speaks to. Thank you. They're very, I mean, obviously a lot of other permutations, but that version um, is what that speaks to. So, good news about oseltamivir, it does shorten time uh, to recovery, it reduces risks of secondary bacterial infection, it prevents um, side effects, or it prevents hospitalizations, and has relatively few side effects, GI upset is the main. The bad news, resistance. And this is something, um, as an ID doc, we really worry about, and it feels funny. To, to say we need to use an anti-infective more frequently, even in a patient who might get by without it. That's, that's not something that an ID doc typically says about antibacterials, just for this reason. So oseltamivir resistance has been emerging, and we need to think about what does this mean, and what does this mean about our practice. Some of the first and most concerning reports about oseltamivir resistance were noted um, uh, amongst patients who were infected with avian flu in Vietnam. And you can see in the red bars, um, those are patients who um, developed oseltamivir resistance. And you can see that for these patients, it wasn't just a laboratory phenomenon, but that they have a very different trajectory of illness than do the patients who had a, um, a excuse me, a virus that remains susceptible. So um, at least in these high path um, uh, strains of influenza, this made a difference. However, in treating um, patients with normal seasonal flu, not high path 
um, avian strains. Uh, we see much less oseltamivir resistance. In trials in adults, the incidence is less than 1%. In pediatric U.S. trials, the incidence is 4%. But for reasons that are somewhat unclear, trials reported out of Japan have repeatedly shown higher levels of resistance. And we don't really know what that's about. We do know that there are other differences in um, uh, the reports of um, antiviral um, uh, responses in um, uh, coming from Japanese investigators. And again, that's going to take a lot more consideration to figure out what might be the basis of that. The question about resistant um, influenza has been really plaguing people for a long time, especially with a potential pandemic, another pandemic somewhere off on the horizon. And so there's an ongoing um, uh, uh, international global um, surveillance network trying to understand the um, proportion of isolates that are um, uh, resistant to influenza. The data uh, all the way over on the um, right show data on H1N1 flu A strains. And what you can see is that by the end of a course of, of therapy, these are all last positive um, swabs from patients, um, you can find, not infrequently, strains that have resistance. What this means, though, really is up to up for debate. So the way this study was done, patients are swabbed at day zero, three, five, seven, and um, influenza uh, was recovered um, and then uh, tested for um, antiviral resistance. And so any um, virion that was still alive and had antiviral resistance would be pulled out in that assay. The last day in which um, uh, flu was recovered and antiviral resistance was detected as shown here. And so whether or not this is an artifact of um, a um, selection pressure and we're just being able to capture that last virion that's still there, resistant, but naturally going to die out um, and not be propagated over seasons, we don't know. But I think this, this bears consideration, particularly as we think about can't, might there be an ongoing reservoir of flu, perhaps in our um, immunocompromised patients who may have very sustained periods of viral replication. So <clears throat> right now, um, the way we're thinking about um, influenza resistance is that by and large, um, uh, the amantadines, so ramantadine and amantadine, are kind of not to be considered. There's too high resistance across um, uh, virtually all strains of flu. We do um, believe that our neuraminidase inhibitors have um, a lot of efficacy against um, seasonal flu of a variety of types and that they should be our frontline therapy. Um, and reassuringly, our most recent surveillance from the past two seasons have suggested that the prevalence of resistance in those strains has been less than 1%. So still a lot of susceptibility. What the future holds, we don't know. Um, as I mentioned, there's been a lot of anxiety about this. And should we um, develop a pandemic, not just with a highly pathogenic strain, but also one with resistance, we would be in big trouble. A new drug has just been brought to market, um, which has a novel mechanism of action. And I think that this drug may be an important part of what we use down the line if um, uh, resistance to neuraminidase inhibitors emerges and persists. 
So this drug is a pro-drug. It's um, uh, baloxavir. I haven't practiced saying that quite often enough. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, it's cleaved into an active drug, and it um, actually acts by inhibiting um, transcription and translation of viral proteins by capping um, uh, the polymerase and so that the um, uh, progressive transcription can't happen. One of the very cool things about this drug is it has a super long half-life. A single dose is given um, uh, to treat a patient with influenza, and I think that's you know, really a novel and wonderful um, uh, advance. The studies that demonstrated um, efficacy um, are referred to as the capstone trials. Um, there's a, a first or second trial, which really was the um, phase three trial that was just published in the New England Journal. And in this trial, uh, 1,500 patients, just about um, as young as 12 years, um, were treated during a single influenza season. They all had lab-confirmed influenza and had short durations of symptoms, about a quarter were vaccinated. And they were randomized not to placebo, well, there were three arms, to placebo, oseltamivir, or baloxavir. And the findings were basically that as compared to placebo, baloxavir had a significant impact with about um, a reduction of 24 hours of um, symptoms and with more rapid fever resolution. But when we compare it to oseltamivir, it's neither better nor worse, it's the same. So I think this is an interesting observation that we have a, a new drug, same impact, different mechanism of action that could be really important as we go forward if we begin to encounter more um, oseltamivir-resistant um, influenza. So, and then the other thing that's interesting is that in their stratified um, uh, analysis, uh, adolescents seem to have a larger effect than older patients. So this drug has been licensed for use in children 12 and above. Um, I don't know the state of um, uh, trials that are, uh, may be done in um, younger children. Um, hopefully, they will be doing those. So I wanted to turn our attention a little bit to what we're going to do about children who are at risk for severe disease or already have severe disease, because that, those are some of the thorniest questions I think um, uh, we as, as academic pediatricians uh, face. Is that latter mechanism much less likely to develop resistance because of the actual mechanism of capping as opposed to a targeted uh, an enzyme? Right. That's an interesting question because we're not even in making more virus. So we're not develop making viral proteins that could be... That may be... I, I have to think about that, but that's, that's, a, that's an interesting question. That'd be just wonderful. <laughs> um, or synergistic, actually, the other. Right, right, right. Right. But that's a, that's a, I, you know, I have not spent a lot of time kind of chewing this over, but that's a, that's a provocative thought. I'll, I'll have to think about that a little bit more. But I think this idea of using um, uh, multiple agents simultaneously certainly ha has a long history in the HIV therapies and um, may, under certain circumstances, perhaps patients who are expected to have very long periods of viral replication, um, such as our immunocompromised patients, perhaps someday we'll have a regimen that does, just as, as Sam's suggesting, having a, a one-two approach, you know, block the replication, stop the um, uh, release. You could also answer that earlier study where you're seeing the residuals mm -hmm. 
the end of treatment that's yeah. could replicate the rest of them. Good point. Good point. A fabulous question, especially with how drugs are being um, priced. No, I don't. Um, no, I don't. I just tried to look it up. There's no price listed yet. Huh? That, that's that, that's a concerning fact, just in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how available the drug is. Like, if you were to write a script for it, you know, could it, it actually be filled? So. Turning our attention to um, severe flu, um, uh, we know that um, there's a substantial proportion of children getting hospitalized with um, uh, severe illness, but it's our ability to detect that is somewhat um, uh, poor. We don't really have good mechanisms uh, in place to do active national surveillance for children hospitalized with flu. And so we use our ILI data in the outpatient setting and our pediatric death data um, uh, to try and understand really what the burden is. Um, but there's, there's a lot of discussion about um, uh, do we need to have something that's focused on children hospitalized with flu. Um, the definitions for serious flu um, have varied a lot. Used to be that we talk about the need for ICU care. Our critical care colleagues have begun to point out that the um, threshold to admit or discharge from an ICU are highly variable, both across institutions and even sometimes within institutions, depending on how precious those beds are. Um, respiratory failure and mechanical ventilation are, have been felt to be a little more hard ends, but um, uh, I think with new approaches to supporting people in respiratory failure with non-invasive um, ventilation, that, that too might be considered a, a less standardized approach. Um, and then prolonged hospitalization. Again, all of these things are susceptible to um, bias over time and um, uh, different institutional practices. So it's hard to figure out um, uh, what's the best um, measure. In some work that we did in Philadelphia, we um, uh, looked to see uh, for the outcome of respiratory failure, which children were at greatest risk. And what you see with these um, bar graphs is that um, uh, essentially the usual suspects, um, children with underlying neuromuscular disease, um, uh, with um, interestingly, um, and this hasn't been discussed a lot, children with um, GE reflux. Um, and um, I'm not going to go into what the, some of the hypotheses about around that have been chronic renal failure um, and cardiac disease. But as I've said before, one of the things that, that really concerns me a lot is we can't just rely on a child's past medical history to predict their course with influenza. We know that there are a substantial number of um, uh, children who are hospitalized um, with influenza without any medical condition, underlying medical condition. And when we compare that to um, uh, adults, really it's a much greater proportion of uh, kids, otherwise healthy kids, as compared to otherwise healthy adults who end up in the hospital with flu. Data on pediatric deaths due to flu are just beginning to, be, to come out. This is a study using um, six years of our national surveillance data, and you can see that there are some differences in children um, who die of flu um, based on whether or not they're otherwise healthy or have chronic underlying conditions. Um, children who are um, uh, previously healthy tend to be younger, um, and they're more likely to have a documented invasive bacterial infection, a little less likely to have a picture of fulminant ARDS. 
We studied in um, Philadelphia whether or not in this select population, oseltamivir, and again, we used early oseltamivir, could alter the, the course of a child who is critically ill already. And so in this study, we used a national data set from children's hospitals called, called FIS um, to pull out children who had lab-confirmed flu and were admitted directly to an ICU. We didn't have data because of the nature of the um, database on the duration of symptoms, but we did require patients who were directly admitted to the hospital and were either started immediately or not started at all on an antiviral agent. And we looked to see whether or not those children had differences in outcomes. As we uh, began to look at our cohort, however, there's some obvious differences. And there's a, um, for those of you um, who uh, are epidemiologists, you'll recognize this, this challenge is patients um, in an observational study who get started on, on antiviral are almost by definition going to be different than the patients who don't get started. And so what do you do? You're comparing apples and oranges. Um, and that was what we had in our initial cohort. We used an approach called propensity score building, and so we created a mathematical model that adjusted for likelihood to be prescribed oseltamivir based on patient characteristics, institutional characteristics, and season to begin to create matched pairs that really did look alike except for the fact that they did or did not receive oseltamivir. And with that um, uh, construct, we were able to go ahead and examine more carefully whether or not there was a, um, uh, a meaningful difference in the outcomes based on whether or not you did or did not get oseltamivir. This red bar here basically um, uh, demonstrates that we were able with this propensity score match to create two comparator groups that had similar um, severity of illness measures as well as um, prevalence of high-risk conditions. And so we felt like we had achieved reasonable um, balance between at least our measured confounders. So what did we find? Well, essentially, we were able to demonstrate about a one-day reduction in total length of hospital stay. But the thing that um, uh, I found interesting is we were unable to find any sort of a difference in the critical illness aspect. Patients were not um, extubated more quickly. Patients were not off pressors more quickly. Patients were not discharged from the ICU more quickly. And so to me, um, uh, I am not sure if we have too much, you know, confounding still in our data that's uh, causing this, or if in fact the premise that we were working on, you know, uh, that an antiviral can profoundly alter the course of an established severe case of flu is incorrect. And I, I now have a lot of uncertainty about whether or not you can actually alter the course of a severely established um, severe influenza with just an antiviral. So here, these are all the things that we were not able to find, uh, unfortunately. Um, I'm sorry, I have a question. When you say early treatment, does that mean early in their hospital course? Yes. Can you determine it was early in disease course? Excellent question. It was early in their hospital course. We required it to be administered within 24 hours of ICU admission. Um, we have no capacity to look backwards and compare duration of illness prior to hospitalization. And so that is clearly a piece of this. 
So let's talk a little bit about severe flu. This is one of the things which um, uh, I find very interesting to think about what's the pathogenesis, and if we understand the pathogenesis, can we think about therapies that might be able to do more than just turning off viral replication? Because we're getting some signals, turning off viral replication may not be enough to alter the course of a patient who has established severe, uh, severe influenza. So these um, uh, pathologic slides demonstrate three of the most common um, uh, phenotypes of um, severe uh, respiratory complications, so a necrotizing pneumonia, a secondary bacterial infection, or a fulminant ARDS-like picture. The pathway by which we think these um, uh, things happen is viral replication, kicking off macrophage activation, kicking off a cytokine cascade leading to um, hyperpermeability, loss of tight junctions, fluid flooding places that it doesn't belong, and then ultimately moving to an ARDS-like um, uh, picture. One of the things which I think um, uh, we need to remember in all of this is what the role of time is playing in this. We have an option way back here before all of this stuff has happened to, to affect viral replication. But I think for me, the real question is, does uh, uh, turning off viral replication have the capacity to stop this kind of march towards ARDS? And if so, can we stop it by stopping viral replication here? You know, what about here? Once we have our activated macrophages, does turning off viral replication work then? And these are questions we don't really know our clinical studies and observations suggest maybe not. So why? One of the things that I think is um, so interesting and challenging about flu is flu is more than just a viral infection. Flu is a viral infection that gives us a huge inflammatory response. And so much of the disease I think we manage in the hospital, and in particular in the ICU with these critically ill patients, is not the virus. We're managing the inflammatory response. So this is uh, one of probably many different cascades of uh, how virus um, initiates a, um, a, a huge cytokine response, initiating, um, uh, starting with um, TLR being signaled by the presence of, uh, you know, danger signal of viral RNA leading to NF-kappa B um, activation, and then transcription of a whole variety of pro-inflammatory cytokines, beginning to loosen um, uh, tight junctions, beginning to permit fluids and exudate into the alveolar space. And in addition, we know that some patients who progress uh, to the most severe flu appear to have alterations in the Th1, Th2 balance, again suggesting that there's not just an immune response, but there's actually a skewing of a functional immune response perhaps giving rise to something that looks a little less um, uh, um, responsive and more pathologic. Um, in this study, uh, investigators tried to see whether or not um, uh, using oseltamivir at the time of hospital admission in adults who had recognized lower respiratory tract infection made any sort of a dif difference. This is an open-label study where patients were treated either with standard of care or standard of care um, plus oseltamivir. And um, this was done independent of symptom duration. The, the criteria for entry was just 
um, lab-confirmed flu and presence of documented lower respiratory tract disease. And you can see that um, in this setting with adults, this made no difference. Again, I think uh, building the story that just turning off viral replication is not going to alter the outcome of uh, serious flu, serious lower respiratory tract influenza um, uh, in patients where it's already been established. So what can we do? Um, I don't really know. I'm showing you this slide um, and this study because I find it interesting. I am in no way advocating for the use of um, azithromycin in this way. But I do think it's interesting. Um, investigators in this study randomized patients with severe flu to either get oseltamivir or oseltamivir plus azithromycin, using azithromycin not as an antibacterial agent, but rather as an anti-inflammatory agent. What they then did was look at the serum cytokines, seeing whether or not there was any alteration in the measurable immune response, the viral load that they were able to recover from nasal washes, and then the patient's symptom score. And what they find, found is that, yes, indeed, patients who received um, oseltamivir and um, azithromycin did have a reduction in um, the uh, serum cytokines that they were measuring. But that their course of clinical illness was essentially unchanged. And so I think this is one of the first um, uh, studies that have tried to look at how can we manipulate the immune response triggered by flu as an adjunctive um, approach to treating a patient with established serious flu. Zithromycin doesn't work, so please don't use it. <laughs> um, Another recently published study is this, which was a um, study looking at hyperimmune um, plasma. And the use of hyperimmune plasma is a very, very old strategy, almost a pre-antibiotic pre strategy to treat various um, uh, illnesses. We still use it to treat um, uh, botulism. This is the therapy that um, showed some success in Ebola. And it's interesting that we're coming full circle and, and looking to see if hyperimmune um, plasma might have a role in treating serious flu. And so this was an open-label study, multi-center, and it compared um, patients who got oseltamivir or oseltamivir plus immune plasma. Um, the plasma was a pooled product. It had a um, documented um, titer against um, uh, he the hemagglutinin um, of greater than, I think, 1 to 80. Um, and both children and adults were um, enrolled. Relatively small size, and respiratory function um, uh, was measured at uh, 28 days. So what did they find? The red bar um, uh, on the left um, indicates those patients who are in the treatment group. So their um, uh, time to um, uh, improved respiratory function was faster than that um, experienced by patients who had just oseltamivir. Uh, but, let me see here, um, uh, when, unfortunately I don't have my glasses on here, um, but when, the, uh, when they looked at the time to uh, resolution, unfortunately my eyes are not going to work that well. Um, so, 
That's right. Um, so despite the um, differences um, here depicted between the patients who received um, oseltamivir plus the um, immune uh, plasma appearing to be significant, the small size um, uh, led the um, analysis to actually uh, fail to demonstrate a significant difference. However, the direction and the consistent direction um, uh, was sufficient to uh, allow these investigators to um, uh, open a larger study, which is currently underway. And I think that this is going to be an interesting thing to see whether or not this um, advances as a, um, a therapy to be used in those patients with the most severe influenza. So I want to check the time here. Um, uh, in the last couple of minutes, I'm going to skip through this um, stuff about um, staff and kind of uh, close talking a little bit about the role of antivirals in flu prevention. So, you know, one of the big questions that we're asked frequently um, in our setting is, can we do anything about prophylaxis? We have adults that accidentally come into our um, NICU and spend three or four days visiting. Sometimes we recently had somebody who was uh, giving the coffee cart around who had influenza. And uh, ask like, okay, now what are we going to do? We've got a bunch of babies. They're not getting vaccinated. Can we do anything? And this is where um, uh, I think this uh, um, can be used. And so we know that from a variety of studies that oseltamivir given within 48 hours of exposure can either abort the development of disease or mitigate, meaning lessen the severity of disease if given as a prophylactic agent. So we typically give oseltamivir um, twice a day for five days. Prophylactic regimens are once a day for 10 days. And I think that this is um, uh, useful to realize that this um, is true whether or not we use it, um, here again, I, uh, as a pre-exposure prophylactic agent. So we know that um, a patient can't get uh, vaccinated but is um, uh, definitely going to have a large um, exposure their sibling is being discharged from the hospital and the, the child must uh, re-enter the household. Um, can be used as post-exposure prophylaxis, like I described in our um, NICU uh, escapade. Or it can be used um, uh, in the last one or series of studies that combined it. All of those episodes uh, demonstrated efficacy. Another place that I think oseltamivir use is um, probably under considered is when we're taking care of a patient who does have um, lab-confirmed flu and we know we're sending them back into the home. The patient doesn't need to stay, um, uh, be hospitalized, but we also can consider who else is in the home, who else is vulnerable. Is there a grandparent living in the home who may or may not have received vaccine but likely did not develop a robust immune response? Is there a sibling with a chronic medical condition? Is there a baby in the family? And so all of these, I think, are, are great times to wonder, shall we approach this more from a public health standpoint, give treatment to the index case, but then provide medical prophylaxis to the home, particularly in times when we know our um, vaccine um, eff efficacy is not terrific, I think this may be a good option. <clears throat> so if we look at the um, uh, kind of secondary impact, um, we can find that uh, 
this active surveillance for these patients in the home or for the household contacts of patients who were treated with oseltamivir, we can substantially reduce the likelihood of them having symptomatic or even asymptomatic culture-positive influenza, again, demonstrating, I think, one of those major features of influenza of not just preventing symptoms, but blunting or preventing viral replication. Um, And like always, time is part of this story. So the time to starting oseltamivir is a huge part of the likelihood of it having efficacy in its um, uh, use as a household prophylactic agent. So with that, I'd like to close. Does anybody know who Boss Tweed was? Anybody remember their history, U.S. history? Oh, he was a political boss, I think, in New York City back then. Yeah, maybe Chicago, maybe New York City. Yeah, associated with Tammany Hall. And what was his, his line? His line was vote early and often. My line is use antivirals early and often. So... <laughs> With that, I wanted to close. Hopefully, um, uh, we've, uh, uh, I've shown you enough data for uh, you to understand that outpatients um, uh, with influenza, we can reduce the duration of symptoms, the secondary um, bacterial infections, and the risk of hospitalization. For inpatients, we can reduce their risk of bacterial infections and shorten their length of stay. And for households um, ex- where there's exposure, we can reduce the likelihood of secondary cases. But Overall, we still need to be focused on starting it early, and that really is the conundrum. We need to push ourselves to start it when we don't necessarily think we need to. And with that, I'll close. Um, uh, code today is Q6PX for anybody who needs their CME credit. It sounds Dr. like Net. bingo. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Net. I work in the ICU, and I feel like we, if they're very sick and they have confirmed flu, we do use oseltamivir, even if it's a five or six or seven illness. I'm not convinced it's making a difference, but I also feel like those are a small enough numbers. I'm, I'm not super concerned about contributing to resistance, but I, I don't know how often kids come into the clinic on day one or two. Like, how often does that, do they really get sick and then go right to the clinic? Steve, do you want to adjust that? Well, I mean, our waiting rooms will be filled pretty quickly. Um, my question, I had a question for yeah. you. So I'm an outpatient doc. And a lot of the patients I take care of are really living on the brink financially. Right. In terms of keeping their home, car, buying good food in the family. And I always worry about financial toxicity if my treatment is going to cause bad health, health outcomes because of the cost. Right. So I know the cost of request diagnostics, which is what a lot of academic centers use, of flu testing is between five hundred and eight hundred dollars. Our rapid is three hundred and fifty. Right now, three hundred fifty. Mm-hmm. Just for the rapid AB. The cost of the PCR. visit is maybe a couple hundred dollars. The cost of the sample flu is between one hundred and two hundred dollars. And so I worry about balancing that. And I wonder how you how you have factored that in and what your thoughts are about the decision to test and to more proactively prescribe chemical. Right. I think those are fabulous questions, and, and, and they do um, concern me. And my message is, is a message that is floating free of any financial analysis. Um, and I think that I need to acknowledge that. I, you know, I think that these are really critical questions. This is where um, issues of, of um, uh, 
restructuring payments <laughs> um, uh, always uh, come to mind. But in the meantime, we do need at a, at a kind of public health level to, to look at those questions and figure out, okay, you know, what are, what are, how are we going to weight different things? And, you know, is it a number needed to treat approach, you know, to avoid a hospitalization? And we could, you know, cost out what a, a typical flu hospitalization is. But when you're looking at a single kid and a single family, you know, buying their oseltamivir and paying your bill, um, as opposed to having the heat for the next month, I, I get it. Yeah. I, and I don't know how, I, how I'd be making decisions under those circumstances. That's... That's not something I've had to do. Dr. Rizicki. Uh Two questions. Uh, first is, is, uh, is there any theoretical reason not to combine in, in a dire situation the use of beloxavir and oseltamivir? And number two, um, there was some flurry of activity using thalidomide as a, an anti-inflammatory. Has that uh, been going on or has that been pretty much diminished? Um, uh, so... With the first question, is there a rule for um, dual treatment with um, beloxavir and um, a neuraminidase inhibitor? And I think um, there may be in the future. I would guess there's probably some trials going on or being designed right now. Um, I don't know um, uh, about those trials or if there's any, you know, double top secret preliminary data suggesting something one way or the other. I was... Um, uh, um, uh, interested to hear, you know, Sam also bring that up too, because I do think that's a, a likely um, approach that, that we may consider, particularly in patients who have um, risk factors for prolonged viral replication. Um, as a follow-up to Steve's question about cost, are there is there epidemiology about different either attack rates in low-income communities? or incidents of severe flu in low-income communities for all the reasons that we know um, low-income communities don't have the resilience of uh, Right, right, right. I'm trying to think. Um, we, Including the propensity matching scores. Right, yeah. The, um, uh, uh, a woman I work with did an analysis of children um, in the Philadelphia area um, uh, likelihood of being hospitalized with influenza. And um, she uh, geocoded all of their homes and mapped them to um, a neighborhood and used census data to differentiate um, uh, high um, and low income neighborhoods or used a, a deprivation score. I can't recite it just Right. But one of her key findings um, that I've always thought was so interesting is that um, children living in um, a large neighborhood um, uh, that has um, low resources had essentially the same likelihood of being hospitalized as children who live in a, um, uh, an area with a lot of resources. The children who didn't, who had a higher risk of hospitalization, interestingly, were children of families that appeared to be low income, they lacked medical insurance, um, a parent wasn't, um, uh, wasn't uh, working, but they lived in a high income setting. And so I'd been unaware of this, but there's apparently uh, kind of an emerging medical sociology observation that, the, that um, uh, islands of poverty 
um, uh, families and small communities embedded of, of few resources embedded into larger areas that are very wealthy actually may be some of our most fragile and at-risk communities because they are not being surrounded or don't have easy access to services that might be available to patients living in um, poorer communities that are recognized as poorer communities. And I thought that was very provocative. That may be more of an urban phenomenon um, than something seen in a more rural setting, but I thought that was really interesting. So can I ask a question? Uh, as our outpatient group, and I see about five of us in the room right now, we've always been a little hesitant to prescribe because I think as our critical care doc noted um, that we often don't see kids until day three mm -hmm. or four of illness. Um, as Steve pointed out, the cost of testing is high. We don't have a rapid testing clinic. We have to swab them, send it downstairs. It takes a few hours to come right. back. And I'm just wondering if you can comment on that. That early and often seems hard when our nurses are taking, and I see our nurses back there taking a lot of triage phone calls right, right. all winter long of, they've got a fever and a cough. They've got a fever and a yeah, cough. They've yeah. got a fever and a cough. Like, I don't know how to choose right. who to give it to. And, and, and I think, you know, um, over and over again, people have tried to construct clinical prediction scores um, to see whether or not we could pick out of a, a waiting room the three kids who've got flu from the 20 kids who have RSV. And the answer there is repeatedly no. You can't do that without testing. Um, the, um, uh, the guidelines to treat every high-risk kid as an outpatient, um, uh, irregardless of duration of symptoms, I find um, challenging. And one of the things that I find particularly challenging is their definition of children under two and maybe under five as being high risk. And that, to me, just I can't get my head around treating an otherwise healthy, um, you know, four-year-old um, uh, as a matter of policy. Um, you know, at the individual level, I could imagine. Um, you know, every time I look at these data, I think maybe I should be, but it just doesn't feel quite right. Um, and um, I think uh, some of the economic analyses are needed. I think, um, uh, you know, just new approaches um, to diagnostics are definitely going to be important. They, there's now the new flu cube, I think it is, that is um, a small um, uh, platform for doing point-of-care testing in offices. But that machine costs, I think, $10,000 in an assay. is like, yeah, exactly. It's $80 a pop. Our hospital bought a few for some of our most busy places. And this year's the first year they're using them. I'm going to be super interested to see what our data look like, if it's really changing. Any other last question? So I know everyone has to go, but I have a question about like pushing vaccines because they didn't Randolph, I'm not sure if you're familiar with all the work, particularly that's a very critically ill population, but vaccines are effective. Even when they are missing, they're still effective. So there's so many people that still don't vaccinate. And in the hospital, the percentage is higher, the really critically ill ones. Yeah. I think that, um, you know, I, I intentionally did not touch vaccination, not because I don't believe in vaccination <laughs> at all, um, but um, I think that uh, the adults may be ahead of us um, uh, pediatricians. The adults have really embraced standing orders for flu vaccination at discharge, and at least the conversation in my hospital gets stuck on when we try to advance this. On, but there's a medical home. We want people to go back to their medical home. And, you know, with all due respect to my general pediatric colleagues, I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if there's an arm, there should be a needle in it, right? 
Um, and we, we've got them. And we've got their families, too. And I think that's another big thing that we as pediatricians could embrace more is our role to, to vaccinate around individual children, whether it's flu or other, you know, pertussis and such. Um, but again, understandably, I don't pay the bills for the, you know, <laughs> vaccines given but not reimbursed because they were given by a pediatrician to a 40-year-old. So. Okay, thank you.